everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banner Podcast, a podcast where we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana. I've got no fun facts for you about Marion, though I will say I've experienced something that I never thought I would um, in Indiana. I'm a native to Indiana. I was born and raised here. And something happened this week that's never happened. I experienced like the the smoke from wildfires that I have never experienced before. So apparently there were a bunch of wildfires in uh, Canada and southern or northern Michigan. And it's just waved down here. It's not quite as bad as New York. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of New York where they're just yellow and smoggy. But uh, the air quality is not great here. So I never thought I would experience that uh, here in uh, the Midwest. But in any case, this is where we are. But we're not here to talk about wildfires. We're not here to talk about uh, Indiana as fascinating as that would be, as much as I would love to talk about the greatest state in our nation. We are here to interview the one and only C.J. Williams. C.J. is the professor of Old Testament and uh, Reform at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He's been a professor for both Joe and I. He taught us uh, Hebrew and um, some of our other Old Testament classes, and it's just a real joy to have you on the podcast here. So thanks for joining us, C.J. Aaron and Joe, it's a great, great pleasure to be on with you guys and to see you again. I'm I'm here in sunny Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the, the as you know, the sky is always blue and the sun is always shining. <laughs> and uh, so the air quality is just just wonderful. Perfect. So, yeah, um, I mean, paradise there in Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, it is good to see you guys. Uh, boy, the seminary is just uh, it's it's a boring place without you guys. You know, it got so quiet after you left. And uh uh, so we miss you there, but no, no, honestly, it's uh, been a good year. Uh, we've, we have a good, very good crop of students and graduates this year, but uh, delighted to see you guys again. For sure. Yeah, Likewise. It's, uh, it's great to hear your voice again. Um, and it's just great to kind of talk about the seminar. I had uh, one of Ed Blackwood's um, new assistants. Um, her name is Miss Duell, I believe. Um, she called me, so I told her to make fun of Ed Blackwood and not laugh at any of his jokes. So it's just good to, it's kind of like I'm double dipping with uh, some of the uh, staff and faculty here at uh, RPTS. Um, but kind of just jumping into our questions here, um, you recently wrote a book um, on Lamentations or a commentary on Lamentations uh, with the subtitle Shadow of Christ. And I think that came out last fall. Is that right? It did. Um, okay. Well, actually, a little later than that. It was early December. Yeah. Well, we kind of want to talk about the the book a little bit. Um, so could you kind of tell us what your goal was in writing a commentary on limitations? It's not a an overly well-known uh, book in the Old Testament. So what was your what was your intent, your purpose, your desire uh, for writing a commentary on limitations? Well, I think part of the reason is certainly that it is, I think, a somewhat neglected book, um, as you mentioned. And, you know, I, I certainly didn't just sit down one day and think, um, you know, I'll write a book. What should I write about it? <laughs> it's a book that really grew out of uh, preaching and teaching that I was already doing. And I was just so taken by the book, fascinated by it, blessed by it in so many ways. And I had come to a, a new understanding of it, a Christ-centered understanding of the book that I really hadn't seen before. And it was exciting, you know. <laughs> uh, I really think I just discovered something about this book that I had never seen. 
And when I was done preaching through the book, I thought, well, there's, I think there's still something more to say. Um, so that's where the idea for this book came. And, and you're right. It's not the, you know, the most popular book of the old Testament. It's not renowned for its gospel content, like maybe Isaiah or the Psalms, you know, it's not where people instinctively go in the old Testament for their morning devotions or whatever. And so, you know, I felt like it was a book that uh, probably a lot of Christians still have a good amount of room left to discover, right? It's one of those books. So, um, you know, I'm attracted to those books. Uh, and uh, so, um, yeah, it was a delight to write. I, I preached through it, as I said, and um, just really the purpose of the book, I think, is to bring out um, how this unique book, and it is truly unique, how it uniquely presents Christ really um, and I, I think it's a book that belongs right up there with Isaiah and the Psalter in terms of its revelation of Christ. Well, one of the things we, we don't want to do is for you to tell us so much about the book that people don't uh, feel the need to read it, but maybe kind of what are appetites and um, maybe where are some areas that you see, you know, Christ in the book of Lamentations? Because that, that's your subtitle, you know, Lamentations, Shadows of Christ. So where, where might we see shadows of Christ uh, in this book? Um, well, just to sort of put that in a nutshell, you know, the book itself is about the, the intense suffering of God's people on a specific historic occasion, and that is the, the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon, 586 BC. And so the book is full of this, this these poetic images of suffering and, and pain and, and destruction. Um, but at the centerpiece of the book, and it is the, the chiastic and conceptual and literary center of the book, chapter three of Lamentations, uh, is dominated by a singular speaker uh, who is not identified, but as he describes himself and his own suffering, which is utterly unique, you know, he introduces himself as, I am the man who has seen affliction, striking in a book where Jerusalem is the daughter, right? She is the widow, but I am the man who has seen affliction. He is a singular lone male sufferer. And as he describes his suffering and his own righteousness and his suffering at the hands of his own people, and ultimately, he describes his own death and what I see as his resurrection as well in chapter three of Lamentations. It is one of those moments in the Old Testament where we hear the voice of Christ himself speaking in the first person, as we do in the Psalter, as we do in the servant songs in Isaiah. So it's not an unknown phenomenon, but it's not something that people have perceived or, or really seen as uh, taking place in the book of Lamentations. And to my mind, that's the core and the centerpiece of Lamentations is that voice, is that one man. And he is, a, he is presented as a singular representative and vicarious suffer, sufferer in the middle of this book. So in the midst of this picture of corporate suffering, all of that fades into the background. And then our eye is drawn to this one man who suffers righteously for his people and with his people. And so I think uh, it is uh, in the same way that the servant songs present to us the servant of the Lord speaking, you know, about his work. Uh, we see that same phenomenon in the book of Lamentations. And I think that's really the key to understanding the book. And that's what makes it such a, uh, such a gospel revelation um, uh, to, to see and to hear Christ speak of his own suffering in this book. Uh, so that, that to me is the core and the centerpiece of it. Dr. Williams, I don't know if you'll remember the illustration that you used I, I still actually remember the sermon you preached on Lamentations 3 there and it struck Dr. Stuyvesant so much as well that he used it in a sermon uh, 
but you used, um, I don't even remember what it's called, but it's basically like a, a thing where you can, you flip it or you move it and you see a different image or something like that. Do you remember, do you remember what you said about that? Or I, I yeah. thought that was yeah. a helpful and neat illustration. I do. And, you know, I didn't know the name of those things either. The, the illustration <laughs> came to my mind. I knew what it was and I had to go look it up. It's it's actually called a lentograph, a yeah. lentograph. And there's a chapter on my book on chapter three of Lamentations called a literary lentograph. Mm. And right. What it is, is it's called a lenticular lens. And there are two different images underneath that lens so that when you tilt it, one image appears and then the other disappears and back and forth. You can go between the images. And uh, so that popped into my mind as illustrating perfectly what's happening in chapter three of Lamentations, because you have this description of corporate suffering, then suddenly, just in the blink of an eye, the picture flips. And now it's this singular male sufferer suffering in their place. And um, to me, that's just such a powerful uh, sort of literary indication of one standing in the place of many. Uh, and then, you know, the, the picture flips, we're looking at the singular sufferer, and then it flips back again, you know, we see the people. And so it gives us the image of one suffering in the place of many. And um, I hope if, you know, if, if someone happens to pick up my book and, and begin to read it, uh, you kind of get to that point in the, the centerpiece of the book a little later in my book. I hope people will persevere to get to that chapter because, yeah. uh, you know, that I think is really the the, the core of it. Yeah. yeah, that was good stuff. That that was, I think, uh, the students, most of them that I talked to said that was the, the sermon of that year. I think just for, I don't, just the way you painted Christ from Lamentations there, that just really stuck out in everybody's head. That was wonderful. Do you, do you have any, uh, down the down the pipe shadow of books that you're you're tinkering tinkering around thinking of you 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 noted um before i think it was before we came on that that you may be doing some some revision work to shadow of christ in the book of job is there anything else uh down 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 the way we could look forward to from you well, that is a great question. I have ideas and I have some different things started and some different material gathered. And so I have a few ideas, but none that I've really, really begun to center on and focus on. I'd like to continue in this vein, you know, the shadow series, if you will. Sure. I, I, I would really like to write on the Song of Solomon. Mm. Uh, I think that may be in the future. Um, I also have an idea for a book um, and you had mentioned this, uh, Joe, in your email about Melchizedek um, <laughs> and just sort of writing on him and the different perspectives on him and doing a little bit of, of my own work on that. And yeah, so, yeah, th those are some possibilities. We'll, we'll see if the Lord gives me the time and the energy. <laughs> well, I'll pray he does, because I think both of those two uh, would be good. Um I remember in seminary, I think you more than than maybe any other professor, and I suppose it's unsurprising since you are one of the the original language professors there. But if you could just talk about um, the role and importance of original language study in sermon preparation, I always thought you were you were excellent at bringing that out and. And often reminding me and convicting me of my need to persevere in the original languages and to seek slow and steady growth in those uh, for sermon prep purposes. So if you could just speak about uh, the role and importance in your own convictions on on original language study for sermon preparation. 
Well, I, I think it's vastly important. Um, we believe in the verbal inspiration of scripture. And I think because of that, we have to take language seriously uh, because God reveals himself in words. Um, and to understand the word, you have to understand the words of God. And uh, I'm struck by a verse in Psalm 119 uh, that says, the entrance of your words, plural, gives light. And if I'm not mistaken, I, you might want to fact check me on this, but I think that's the only place in the Bible where it's not called the word of God. It's called the words of God. And that's just striking to me. It's just a reminder that the word is made up of words. And we mm -hmm. believe that each word is inspired, right? Not just the overall gist of scripture or just the overall message, but the words themselves. So that means we have to take language very seriously. And the languages uh, in which God chose to reveal himself. We need to really take that seriously. So I, I think it's vastly important, you know, that pastors don't rely on secondhand knowledge. And that's not to suggest, of course, that, you know, an English Bible is not the word of God. Of course it is. You know, it's the means of grace and it's intended to be translated into every language. Um, but going to the original language provides us with the, you know, just original uh, nuance, original uh, just everything that a language entails, um, because things are gained and lost in translation. And um, and going back to the original language just helps us to, to read scripture in an authentic way. A little bit of my own experience, whenever I um, am starting to write a sermon, the first thing I'll do is I'll sit down and read the text. You know, I'll, I'll read it in English and I'll think to myself, where am I going to start? What am I going to say about this passage? And then I'll get out my Hebrew Bible, you know, piece of paper and a pen, and I'll start on a translation. I'll translate from uh, Hebrew to English. And once I go through that process, I, I feel like, you know, a, a switch is being flipped. You know, then, then the question becomes, there's so much here. How am I going to do this all in one sermon? You know, it just really is eye-opening. Um, and, uh, yeah, and maybe, you know, I can't describe that. Maybe you just have to do that for yourself to go through that process. Uh, to really realize how 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 much more rich and deep um, our understanding of Scripture is when we take the languages seriously, and and we really need to because we need to go back to the Hebrew and Greek text uh, for clarity, for precision, uh, and and that's been proven time and again in disputes as on such great subjects as the Trinity and such things as that. It really depends on you know, the jots and the tittles, the, you know, those kind of things uh, can be very consequential. So, and that's my encouragement to you guys too, keeping up. Yeah. With <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I feel a tiny bit hypocritical saying that because my Greek skills have, kind of, <laughs> have, uh, have atrophied a little bit. Uh, well, maybe more than a little bit, but I can still work with a Greek text. It's a lot harder. It takes a lot more time, but um, I, that's one thing, one of the goals I have for myself is to uh, get back into Greek and and uh, relearn that language, but um, I, I just encourage any and every pastor to do that. Yeah, time, you know, just a little bit of time every week. Um, and it, it that's what I was going to ask you. Like, what what would be some tips that you could give guys, or even even what you wish you would have done, perhaps as you look back to have stayed sharper on your Greek or or whatever. What what would be some tips for guys? You know, assuming a guy just out of seminary, mm -hmm. what would be some of those things he could or should start doing to maintain and slowly even advance in his knowledge of the original languages? 
That is a great question. I think one thing you can do is just do your own daily devotions in the original language, because you're going to do that every day anyway, right? So just kind of blend the two together, like force yourself to use it. Um, when I started studying Hebrew after seminary and going to graduate school for Hebrew, one of the things I did was I just put my English Bible away. And I, and I just said, I'm going to use the Hebrew Bible. It's it's a matter of survival now because I'm going to read the Bible. And, if I'm, and I'm going to learn how to read this thing one way or the other. You know, you, you, put, you, you force yourself to the task that way. And even if you spend 20 minutes in your morning devotions just by yourself, just pick one verse, read it, make sure you understand it, have your lexicon right there. And just that much a day uh, really pays dividends in the end. Um, and also memory work, pick a, a memory verse, even if it takes you two weeks to, to memorize it. You know, it's just, it gives a vocabulary, a context. You're laying up God's word in your heart and you're also working on the language all at the same time. Mm. Uh, so it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a, going through a textbook or, you know, setting apart enormous tracks of your time. Uh, it's just work it into what you're already doing with the scriptures from day to day. And I think uh, it'll, it'll make it a lot easier. I think Aaron reads his Old Testament in Hebrew every day. Yeah, you know, Hebrew. That's uh, actually don't even own an English Bible. I don't even know what that is. He's <laughs> talking about like, it's DHS only for me. <laughs> now, I remember, uh, you know, taking Hebrew from you and uh, we got to take Hebrew one from you and then you went on sabbatical. So we took uh, two and three from Dr. Watt. But um, every time I think of that Hebrew class, the uh, alphabet song is just stuck in my head, you know, oh, man. <laughs> so I, and I don't I don't know if I ever told you uh, like what my method was for memorizing the alphabet. But I found a, a YouTube video um, of the old Barney kids show where Barney sings the alphabet in Hebrew. And so for my drive from Beaver Falls to Pittsburgh, uh, those first few weeks, I was just listening to Barney sing the ABCs in Hebrew over and over and over again. <laughs> so it's forever ingrained in my mind. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, that's that's well, good. That's, that's a... <laughs> so that's the original language. Um, you're also, and it was, it was one of my favorite classes. I really enjoyed taking it. Um, the thing I regretted about it is that for my schedule, I had to take it at a distance over or not at a distance had to take it online over the summer but your covenant theology mm. class um and and in there and even in our old testament courses and hebrew exegesis what i something i love about the way you teach as well is it's not it's not all just original language exegesis divorced from covenant theology and systematic theology you're constantly reminding us you know, in our exegesis to the first questions we need to be asking in our sermon prep are, you know, what what does this passage teach me to believe about God? And what does it teach me about my the duty he requires of me? You know, those are the two two systematic categories our uh, catechism lays down. So if you could just talk as well kind of about not only the importance of original language study for bringing out the richness of the scriptures, but also the role of covenant theology in helping us in our exegesis and our sermon preparation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I suppose in a nutshell, we can just look at covenant theology as just being the storyline of the scriptures, right? The, the grid work on which the whole 
story of redemption unfolds. And it is, um, it's what unifies scripture. You know, the, the God's condescension uh, to save man by way of covenant and the, the promises that, uh, that he makes and reveals progressively through the scriptures is, uh, is the storyline, uh, if we can just put it that way. And, you know, any given passage that you're studying or preaching on, you know, what uh, it gives it all its orientation. You know, that's the first question to ask is how is, how is the story of the covenant being further revealed and developed? Uh, because uh, scripture has a, a fairly narrow focus on that question uh, because it is the unfolding of the covenant that it records for us. So the covenant to which we belong. And that's what makes every passage relevant, right? Because we belong to that very same covenant. And uh, so it is the link between the past and the present uh, of God's people. And it's also the key for understanding uh, every portion of scripture in its, in its original intent uh, and in its fullness. Um, so yeah, exegesis, I think, begins with covenant theology. And I've always like differentiated between historical context, which talks about the text's present and then redemptive historical context which talks about the text past and how it represents a unique development or step in the unfolding promised plan of god so um you know to to put each passage of scripture in that greater context is just to it, it illumines it it helps us to understand it in a genuine way so that's yeah i've always maintained that's one of the first questions to ask you know in exegesis is is um looking at that great storyline um, where are we on that storyline? And how is this story, how is this passage part of that development? So, Yeah, I love the way you put it there because you know, I, I certainly believe we need to be applying the word of God to our people today, but um, I, don't, I don't like when people talk about we need to make the scriptures relevant or something like that as, as if they're not already so. And like you said, the very fact that we are in this same covenant that was initially uh, implemented in Eden with Adam after the fall, this same one covenant of grace uh, makes every passage relevant. We just need to show the relevancy, not make it relevant. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to ask, uh, you had talked about our, um, the last covenant theology class switching to, to this book, as one of your main texts, mm -hmm. have you have did you end up making that switch, or was it this one that you were going to switch to? Yeah, Joe. Yeah, Joe, yeah. yeah tell us yeah. what book it is because listeners cannot see what you're holding up. <laughs> I know. I was I went right when I was grabbing this. I was thinking I'm going to need to do that, and then and then I get sidetracked. Um, so it's the fulfillment of the promise of God, an explanation of covenant theology by Richard Belcher, and he is professor of Old Testament and the academic dean at Reformed Theological Seminary, Charlotte. And I knew Dr. Williams, I think it was, I don't even remember when actually, maybe you mentioned it in our, um, in the covenant theology class or something. Anyways, I bought this book that summer. I was taking the class mm -hmm. and, and used it as kind of a supplement to the other text that you were having. And when we were still there, you, you were still in the process of considering using it. So now that you've made that change, um, what, are, what are your thoughts on this book? Is this a book that you would recommend um, for, for the average listener to get a good overview of covenant theology? Is it more something that's uh, more for the seminary student and the pastor? Or where, what could you say about, uh, about this new book on covenant theology? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I really like Belcher's book, um, and I think it's accessible, you know, to all. I don't think it's uh, just, you know, uh, uh, one that only, you know, a seminary student would appreciate. I, I think it's uh, it's readable, and I think, uh, you know, many, many folks would find it very helpful. I like the book because um, it, he he strives to intertwine covenant theology with the, the teaching of the confession. He, and he shows um, how our confession brings out covenant theology. So, and that was his intention, you know, from the start to show the confessional nature sure. of covenant theology as it's in the Westminster confession. And so he's, it's almost sort of a, an extended commentary on that. And it's very helpful. You know, I, I, I think it's a good, clear and concise book. He does, he does dabble a little bit into alternate views and such things as that, but not really, you know, it's not as though this is a compendium of all the scholarship out there. You know, it's, it's just a, a very good, sober, uh, confessional, um, you know, presentation of covenant theology. So I thought, you know, my students would benefit from that. I certainly did. I liked the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I still have them read some classical stuff. Witsius. I, I've always liked uh, Witsius on uh, the economy of the covenants and, you know, so that's more of the, the, the classical work I have them read. And then this would be more the modern work I have them read. So, yeah. Yeah, I loved reading Witsius in some ways. In some ways, it was tough sledding. Like sometimes he starts arguing with someone for like four or five pages and you have no clue who this guy is. But there is some just absolute gold uh, in Witsius as well. I think, I mean, there's a reason it is the classic text on covenant theology, but yeah, it would just make me laugh reading that. Like, it's like when Charles Hodge goes off into Latin for like a couple pages or something, you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? You, but, you don't uh, read Latin, yeah. Joe? No. Come on. <laughs> no more comments. <laughs> this is probably smart. That's probably wise. Well, kind of continuing this, uh, this thing we're talking about, you know, the role of covenant theology in sermon preparation. And this brings us to kind of our perennial question that uh, we like to ask our pastors and uh, professors as well is um, kind of their own uh, philosophy of preaching. Um, you know, how do you preach? How do you go about preparing to preach? I mean, you're obviously dealing with the original languages more maybe than um, others are. And then, you know, when it comes to the actual delivery, um, what's your method regarding manuscript outline, no outline, um, yeah. So what, what is, you know, Dr. Williams preaching philosophy and preaching style? Uh, well, um, maybe we'll start with philosophy. Um, it's, it's humbling. Um, you know, and I guess I've, I've learned more than ever just uh, how, how much you have to rely uh, upon God's grace and be a prayer um, to be an effective preacher uh, that makes sure the text preaches to you first, that you you grapple with the text uh, personally and devotionally, um, you know, because you're not just delivering a, a speech, you're, you're trying to bring out some spiritual riches. And if they haven't touched your heart, they're not going to touch other pe people's hearts through you. Um, so... I, I make it a practice to, if I am preaching on a text, I know I'm preaching on a text, to spend devotional time with that text, uh, whether it be, you know, just reading it on my own and praying over it or reading it with someone else, my family, my wife. Um, I think that's an important prerequisite. We already talked about translating, you know, the language and, and such as that. But um, 
relying on the power and the grace of God. Um, you know, it comes down to that and being humble. Um, you know, I, I've, I've actually had the experience of preaching a sermon <clears throat> and, uh, and someone came up to me who, who didn't otherwise ever really comment on my preaching, but came up to me and said, that sermon really spoke to me. That was one of your best sermons. It just was wonderful. Thank you so much. And then, you know, just as, as Satan started to use that in my head to, you know, inflate, um, this, the very same day, another trusted brother who was a little more, you know, could freely talk to me a bit more and, uh, and, and would often talk to me about preaching, came up to me and said, you know, you just weren't on your game today. That was not a very good sermon. Uh, <laughs> you know, you were struggling up there. And I, and I thought, you know, that's a lesson learned. I, I don't, don't take to heart compliments or criticism so much. Just preach to the glory of God and preach uh, depending on his grace for his glory and for no other reason. And you, you take the, the compliments and the criticisms all with a grain of salt, but it, it's, it's the Lord that you're trying to exalt and, and do that with a clear conscience. And uh, well, just in terms of what I do in the pulpit, um, I'm a manuscript preacher. Um, I always have been. And, but I, I, I try to know my manuscript well enough that I don't have to always be looking at it. You know, I want to be able to look around and make eye contact and, and go off manuscript and, and, you know, to do all those things. But you have to know a manuscript well in order to do that. So I've made it a practice of writing out my manuscripts word for word. And the reason I do that is simple. It's because, you know, what you're doing is important and choosing the right words is important. And uh, because you want to preach with precision, you don't want to be sloppy with your words. You want to communicate exactly uh, a, a thought and use the right words because, um, you know, the, the, the right word or the wrong word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug, right? And, mm -hmm. and you want to be precise, too, because it's God's word you're preaching, not yours. And so I, don't, I never want to find myself up in the pulpit, stepping and fetching, trying to figure out how do I put this point? How do I say this? And then say something that I shouldn't say or misspeak in some way. I just think it's, it's, it, it's safer. And it shows, a, I just, in my own view, it's the, you know, there's, it's important enough to give it that precision that you can only get from a manuscript. Now, I don't fault guys who preach from outlines or, or with nothing in front of them because some men can do it very well. I'm just not one of those guys. Um, so I, I, um, that, that's the way I do it. You know, that's not the only way and probably not the most popular way either, but that's the way I found it to work best for me. Yeah, so how, how do you, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit and, and unfolded it some. So how do you go exactly from the passage to the manuscript? You, you said that, you know, so if, if I could track with you so far and maybe these would be all of the steps, but are there any other things you do or any other questions you're asking of the text? So, you know, let's say you're preaching on Lamentations 3, and so you spend time devotionally in that word, applying it uh, to your own heart and your own soul and, and praying over that. You would uh, read it in English first as you're doing that, and then you would get to the point of translating it from the Hebrew into the English at that point, do you would you go straight from there into kind of writing and and as you're writing, the thoughts are are flowing and coming out, or what are you doing in between the translation of Lamentations three and the manuscript of Lamentations three, if and if anything else? 
That's a, that's a great question. Uh, typically, um, how it works for me, and you know, no, no two sermons are, are alike, but typically what I'll try to do is try to formulate what I think are the main points, point or points that I'm going to bring out. That might be one, two, or three, or four, you know, whatever, uh, whatever the text calls for. And then what I'll try to do is take main points and then develop those into paragraphs. And then, and then from there, develop the paragraph into pages. And so start by stating what you want to say succinctly, and then building from there uh, sort of all the supporting evidence and illustrations or whatever it may be that, that sort of that build up, that buttress that point. Um, so you start with this. So really what I've done in the past is I'll start with a sermon outline, which I'll actually uh, very often in the past have, you would give to the congregation, you know, be in the bulletin or whatever, and the sermon outline. And then I would write my sermon from the outline, you know, try to be as succinct as possible first, and then do all the explanation and illustration and stuff like that. So, um, so you know, typically, uh, you know, working with the text uh, in the language, you know, doing the translation, coming up with an outline, that would be the first two steps, and then the manuscript would follow from that. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Aaron, do you got anything else on sermon prep or any questions like that? So this is this is another thing um, that that I certainly appreciated um, that you also emphasized in OT exegesis classes, and and perhaps we'll have another episode where we'll we'll settle the debate over the text of the New Testament, the preferred text of the New Testament, but. You're a big fan of, a proponent of the uh, traditional Masoretic text of the Old Testament. And so I was just wondering if you could unpack for our listeners uh, why we as a church should favor the Masoretic text, kind of some of the reasons that, that you actually make that a point, and not a huge point as if in, it's like your hobby horse, but you do bring that out in, in the courses, uh, just some of the reasons why why you have that conviction yourself of favoring and trusting the traditional Masoretic text of the Old Testament. And, and as you do that, you know, we do have listeners um, who are not, you know, pastors or not seminary students. So maybe explaining even what the Masoretic text is would be helpful as well. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a big question. How long is it our podcast? No, that's, that's good. I'll, I'll try to, uh, Put it put it in a nutshell. Well, I get, you know, there's different starting points for for that answer, but I suppose I'll start with this one, and that is that um, we believe uh, the, you know the doctrine of Scripture, which comes from Scripture itself, is that God has uh, seen fit to preserve His Word. You know, to, to confession puts it, keep it uh, pure and entire in all ages, uh, to providentially preserve it. And it's, it's not going to pass away, right? It's something that we have. It's a gift, and it will not pass away, and we will not lose it. So we have to be able to lay our hands on it and say, this is it. Um, this is the scripture that God has entrusted to the church, our inheritance. And um, while I think it is very valuable to look at and compare ancient versions and even modern translations you know it always gives you a little bit of insight into how people were reading the text and thinking about the text in their own time and place 
But, um, you know, in Romans 3, Paul says, what advantage then has the Jew? What advantage has circumcision? And he says, much in every way, chiefly, because to them were committed the oracles of God. And so God committed the scriptures to, uh, that was a great old covenant blessing, that which accrues to us, right? It belongs to us now. But he gave it to Israel, his people in the old covenant, and um, in the language that they that they knew and in which God chose to reveal himself. So that's why the Hebrew text uh, has to be seen as the, the text, right? Um, it has to be viewed that way, ultimately. And um, so we're not left in a situation with just all these different uh, variants and variables and options and trying to piece together something that we've lost. Uh, we have it, and God preserved it. Um, now, as for the Masoretic text, like Aaron mentioned, the Masoretes don't come on the scene until 500 AD, and their work ends in 1000 AD. So that's many centuries later than Moses and Ezra. Um, but their work was to preserve and transmit the text as they received it. And they did that faithfully. All will agree that that was something that they did very conscientiously. They themselves having the perspective that that was the inspired word of God. That's something we share in common with the Orthodox Jews today, that Hebrew scriptures are from God. Um, so even, you know, some will criticize and say, well, that's a, it's a non-Christian text then, because it was transmitted uh, and preserved by the Masoretes. And um, you know, God simply used them in their moment of time uh, for his purposes to preserve that word. And, uh, you know, Luther famously called the Masoretes the, uh, the librarians of the church, right? <laughs> or the bookmen of the church, I think, something like that. Um, that uh, God used them for that purpose, and uh, they, they, they accomplished that purpose well. So, um, uh, you know, as I said, there's there's value in comparing versions and targums and <laughs> Septuagint and such things as that, giving you insight into how some people understood the text in their time and place. But um, when it, the question comes to what is the text, you, you just simply have to say the Masoretic text. Yeah, no, I that's that was always a, a breath of fresh air for me, and and especially even the way you would teach us to deal with the apparatus in the BHS. It was, it was never to doubt the Masoretic text or to even to look to that for some potentially different reading. It was to shed light on, like you were saying, and to make you think more deeply about the Masoretic text. And so I, I, uh, I always found those apparatus exercises actually helpful uh, at the end in, and even if I was looking at an exam or something like that and thinking, oh, man, this is going to take a lot of time or something. <laughs> it was one of those, like, once you got into it, it was actually, it was fun and it was profitable and it did exactly what you said. It, it, it made you think more deeply and in doing so would often shed more light on, on the traditional text of, of the scriptures. So, yeah. And just, just for our listeners sake in the, the BHS, the apparatus, it's basically like a bunch of footnotes that the Masoretes have uh, taken on variant readings in different manuscripts, um, which kind of see how the, how different translations have translated the text. Um, one of the things, you know, as I've worked through this, I, I don't think that I'm fully settled on the issue one way or another yet. Um, but what would be your response to the question, you know, when we go through the New Testament, it's clear that, you know, the apostles are quoting from the Septuagint text. Um, 
what what would be kind of a comeback to that regarding the um, primacy of the Masoretic text? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember that Christ and the apostles uh, lived in a time when there were textual variants. <laughs> you know, there were, you had the Septuagint on the scene and and probably some Targums in use, even though we don't have Targums from that early a time period, but, uh, well, not complete ones anyway, but um, but they could still confidently quote the word of God and say, this is the word of God. So again, that it, just because there are variant readings and, you know, different ancient traditions doesn't, does not cast doubt on our possession of the word of God. But Aaron, your, I guess your question specifically is they're, they're writing to, you know, in the New Testament, Paul will quote the Septuagint when he's writing to a Greek speaking audience. And we would expect that, you know. Uh, if you're writing to a friend and you want to quote scripture to him, you're going to quote it in English because that's what he reads and that's what you speak. But neither one of you thinks that, oh, well, that's the original text that, you know, God gave Moses on Mount Sinai in English, you know, but, you know, you understand mm-hmm. you're using it. It's the word mm-hmm. of God, but you're using it in your own language because that's the language you speak. And so I think Paul's use of the Septuagint is for, for very practical reasons. Um, you know, it wasn't based on some assumption that the Septuagint is superior uh, to the Hebrew text, but just because um, that's what his audience read and understood. So um, so I think the Septuagint should be read and used and appreciated like any other translation is, because that's what it is ultimately. It's a translation, just like the King James, just like the whatever, you know. Uh, there's great value to a translation. Uh, thank God, truly, that it was translated into Greek because it reached the whole world at that point. Uh, but it is just a translation. And I think the apostles use it as such, um, and we ought to see it as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Unless illustrations, I'll just say that, um, as far as being able to have confidence in saying to people as you're reading your English Bible that this is the Word of God because we see, like you said, uh, the apostles themselves doing just that thing. Aaron, do you have any other on on the Masoretic text before we ask the fun theological question? No, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. And, and this is in you know the rare case where our listener kind of knows what we're going to ask. Well, yeah, this is your guys' revenge too, right? This is so no. you get to in the hot seat. Of no, of course not. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, our listeners know that we do this. We end every episode with a fun theological question, nothing divisive or anything like that, but fun questions to ask. And we started this question last episode with Ramesh Prakashbalan from Dallas. So he was our first one up, but we we wanted to ask this group of guys this question because we knew we would have Dr. Williams on. And you you actually had a formal debate with our New Testament professor, and the debate was over the question of the identity of Melchizedek. I still have not actually got to see that debate myself, but I know it happened. I've heard all about it. And so we do know that you defended the position that Melchizedek Melchizedek is not merely a type of Christ, but actually was himself the pre-incarnate Christ. And Dr. Stuyvesant defended the position that, um, that, that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. I, I hold to the type position, but again, I've never actually heard the debate myself. 
and so am somewhat ignorant to perhaps the arguments uh, to the contrary. And so we wanted to give you a chance to reveal to us the identity of Melchizedek and then briefly, as concisely as you would, but as much as you'd like, tell us why Melchizedek was, in fact, the pre-incarnate Christ. Oh, boy. Well, you guys opened a can of worms. Um, <laughs> and I uh, hope you cleared your schedules. We're going to be here. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll, I will try to uh, just maybe give a very succinct summary of uh, my view on that text. Sure. By the way, that debate that Jeff and I did was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. I love my dear brother, Jeff. Uh, I think he lost that debate. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, he, we had a lot of fun doing that. And um, and Jeff made some good points, too. You know, I would encourage you to look that up. It's on YouTube somewhere. Um, OK, OK. But um, fascinating question, you know, and I I, I think I do hold a minority view. I. I think, um, just from what I've seen in, in my readings here and there. Um, but, you know, it, it mostly hinges upon, well, we talked about covenant theology before. There is an argument to be made in within Genesis itself um, as to the identity of Melchizedek. But a lot of it hinges, hinges on Hebrews 7, of course, and, and how we understand that text. And just for the broad picture, I don't, I, you know, there's a hundred different things I, I might try to bring out of that. But I'll just say this, maybe thinking about the argument of the book of Hebrews, right? Hebrews is all about the superiority of Christ over everything, right? It begins with the angels. He's superior over the angels and the priesthood. He's superior over that. He's superior over the, the ancient tabernacle. That's how you outline Hebrews, right? Uh, you name it, Christ is better. Christ is superior. So it seems really strange to me that in Hebrews 7, the whole argument would be Melchizedek, one man, is greater than Aaron, another man, right? Who, If they're both just men, then who cares who's greater? <laughs> you know, um, but the point that is being made is that the antitype is greater than the type. Aaron's the type. Melchizedek is the antitype. And so without naming him, he doesn't have to name him because he already has a name, King of righteousness who else has that name um because it's not just a title it's it, it's it's who he is right and and king of peace who else can you call the king of righteousness and the king of peace and and that's one of the points that he makes in hebrew 7 is this is what his title means and he's telling us who it is by telling us what the title means <laughs> and when he says you know he he uh, he does not have a genealogy um he doesn't say that uh, he has one. We just don't know it. He says he does not have one. Right? Who else does not have a genealogy? Um, so um, there's there's plenty of things, um, and especially hinging on that phrase, the order of Melchizedek that we get from Psalm 110 and talking about the order of Melchizedek. The Hebrew word that's used for order is not the same word that's used to talk about a priestly order, like the Aaronic order, the priestly order, something. It's um, um, it's a different Hebrew word, and it's it's. Um, I would argue for an understanding of it being not so much as like order, because it's never used in that sense, but more of like model or paradigm. Melchizedek appears mysteriously as the paradigm of the priesthood, right? He shows us it in its perfection. 
And then the Aaronic priesthood is appointed after that to reflect the heavenly reality of Melchizedek's priestly ministry. And so Aaron abides as the type, while Melchizedek is introduced as the antitype. He, and that's our first introduction to priesthood in the Bible. Melchizedek is the first person who's called a priest. Um, the mystery surrounding him, right? Where how, There's so many questions, right, in Genesis. There's so many questions, right? But the mystery is purposeful. Uh, because he is not—he he is not simply a man on earth who's a priest. He—he he appears mysteriously, just like the angel of the Lord, um, in, in so many instances, and he is that same one, I think, ultimately. And he is, of all people, if he could mediate, why wouldn't Abraham fulfill that role? If we're just talking about a priestly type, um, but Melchizedek. He mediates between God and Abraham. He blesses both of them, right? Uh, standing in that mediatorial role. So I, I think there is just there's there's so much to the argument uh, to see him as a glimpse of Christ in his priestly role, as our very first introduction to the whole idea of priesthood and the need for a priesthood. And then it's Aaron, who's appointed in all his his fallenness uh, <laughs> to be that type, that earthly type. And I think that's the burden of Hebrews seven is bringing us back to that, that contrast between type and anti-type uh, to once again show how Christ is greater than the human priesthood, especially as embodied by Aaron. So there's a lot more to it, but maybe that's just a little bit of a, uh, <laughs> a Reader's Digest version, maybe. Yeah, no, that was good. Aaron, did he just convince you? No, but I think I'm convinced that we'll never get a book from uh, Dr. Williams entitled Melchizedek, A Shadow of Christ. <laughs> yeah you'd have to switch that one up wouldn't you? yeah jeff is funny jeff is convinced also that he won that debate always loved hearing you two take jabs at each other <laughs> <laughs> well like i said we had a lot of fun yeah 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 it, no it was good yeah so, that's a useful kind of thing to take a topic like that and just uh and have a debate you know and and uh because it sharpens uh you know it, it might make us dig our heels in more in our positions mm -hmm. but it also sharpens jeff brought out some good points that uh, made me think you know uh, things that i haven't thought of and hopefully i did as well sure yeah no no i'll look forward to uh to the upcoming book on that and see if uh with our next two listeners we can finally settle the debate over over who melchizedek is I'm going to ask Jeff to write the endorsement for that book. There you go. That would be good. That would, yeah, he almost has to. He almost has to. Cool. Yeah. All right, Aaron, I'm done. I'm done. All right. Well, this has been uh, another episode of the Blue Banter podcast. Our guest has been CJ Williams, professor of Old Testament there at RPTS. You have now two YouTube videos to look up. You can look up the YouTube video of the debate between Dr. Williams and Dr. Stuyvesant. You can also look up the YouTube video of Barney singing the Hebrew alphabet. You can be both delighted and horrified at the same time. If you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use, share this episode on your social media account. If you would like us to ask pastors particular questions or you have, uh, you'd like to recommend that your pastor be interviewed on this podcast, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God.